From the AMF Podcast Studios, you're listening to the Health and Safety Law Report. I'm Doug Jenks. And I'm Abby White. So today we're going to talk about workers' comp and OSHA, uh, or at least one particular part of workers' comp and OSHA. Specifically, we want to talk about recording alleged work injuries for workers' comp purposes, but then also talk about recording those injuries for OSHA, and then beyond that, talk about when do you have to report those injuries to OSHA. So not just record it, but actually report it. And just to put all this in context, I know I've, I think we've mentioned this before, but Abby and I defend employers in workers' comp and OSHA matters. We don't ever represent employees. And so that is our perspective as we're talking about all of these matters. It doesn't mean that employers are always right or that employees are always wrong. But for the most part, when Abby and I get involved in a workers' comp claim or an OSHA uh, case or investigation, it's because the employer does have some viable defense and there is evidence indicating that the claim or the allegations are not entirely accurate. Um, so, which is to say that when an employee is actually hurt at work, then that individual can and should avail themselves of whatever treatment and comp uh, compensation is provided through workers' comp. But when the employee, let's say, claims a back injury occurring first thing on Monday morning after having moved furniture all weekend, then uh, the employer and we might have something to say about that. So, um, that's sort of our perspective. And so when we are talking about what is an employer or what's the best way that in our opinion, and this is not legal advice, but, uh, in our general opinion, what we're going to talk about is what we like to see happen for, uh, or what we'd like to see employers doing when an injury is reported to them. So before we get into that, and I'll throw it over to Abby, is there is there anything that you want to add about anything I just said, Abby? No, but I'm so glad you prefaced with that because I think on the defense side of things, we often get accused of, you know, trying to find loopholes and ways to deny employees their benefits and we're, you know, the bad guys and you know, the truth of the matter is there are very good employers out there that get burned by employees who, um, you know, either intentionally try to have an injury um, put through workers' compensation that shouldn't be, or that maybe aren't injured in the first place, or, you know, maybe they don't even understand that what their problem is is not work-related. That happens too. Um, but there are, yeah, I, we're not accusing every single injured worker of of not being injured or of you know doing something unscrupulous but there are instances where you know employers need to uh, protect themselves and that's we're coming at it from a point of how can pr employers protect themselves not how employers can stick it to their employees right on yeah um you know sometimes an individual will have pain at work or experience a health problem at work and they immediately think it's a workers comp problem and they file it as a workers comp claim and it's or, or they may sincerely believe that it's a workers comp problem but legally it's not because if you have pain or an illness while you're at work that doesn't mean it was caused by work yeah hurting at work is not the same as getting hurt at work i hurt at work every day me too <laughs> 
as I get older. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Emotional hurt and physical hurt. As you, (laughs) that's that's the life of an aging parent. Yes. All right. So, Abby White, what do you like to see employers doing in terms of recording work injuries when an employee comes to them and says, "Hey, I was hurt at work." So first and foremost, and I think most of the employers, at least the ones that we work with do this, but, you know, have an accident um, report or an incident report ready um, that your employee can fill out to explain what happened. And hopefully you notice that I'm calling it either an accident report or an incident report, because that's my preferred lingo over injury report, because there may or may not be a true injury from whatever incident or accident your employee is going to report on this form. So that's kind of my first tip is, you know, call it the right thing. Do you Um, prefer that it's an incident report? An incident report or an accident report. I would not call it not an injury report. Got it. No, there might not be an injury. Right. Something happened. Yeah. So record that. Right. All right. So that's maybe nitpicky to a lot of people, but we're wordsmiths by trade. So that's, you know, it's what we get paid for. And you all are getting it for free right now. (laughs) Um, So my next, the, the, the number one recommendation that I have, if you do nothing else, make sure that the employee is the one filling out the form not the supervisor or the manager or the witness or the HR person or the safety person. This should be in the employee's own words. It is their description of what happened to them. And I see so many reports where the form is either filled out by the supervisor or there's a separate page for the supervisor to fill out. And then you have you know, a supervisor or maybe even a member of your upper management team saying, oh, this happened to so-and-so and what they're saying may or may not be accurate. And you as the company now own that pretty much as an admission that all these things happened in the report. And so it's really important that it should be in your employee's own words. That way the employee cannot accuse you of misconstruing it. And that way you have not adopted any sort of statement that may or may not be true. What kinds of information do you like to see uh, the employees record on that form? So there's the obvious stuff, right? Your name, the date that it occurred, as well as the date that the form is being filled out. So don't just put like the date of the accident because sometimes these forms don't get filled out right away. So the date of the accident or incident, again, accident or incident, the time it occurred, the location where it happened, identify any witnesses that might have seen this happen. Uh, If they verbally reported it, uh, when they reported it, the date and time and to who, so you know who you can go and talk to. Did I say witnesses already? Yeah, I think I said witnesses. Have them identify uh, any parts of the body that were affected either by writing those down or maybe by having, you know, like a pain diagram or like a body diagram where they just circle 
but don't sometimes I see forms where <laughs> the injured person or the employee is asked to kind of diagnose themselves and say like, do you have a sprain or a laceration or a contusion? Don't do that. They're not doctors. Right. Uh, and if they're, if they're forced to check a box, they will. And maybe they don't have any of those things. The worst so, is, is a form that's a, some sort of incident or injury form that is filled out by a supervisor and the supervisor writes what the what they think the injury was. Yes. As, as yep. if they have diagnosed this alleged injury and they have found that, a you know, a lumbar sprain or some actual diagnosis actually happened. And that's yeah. what it looks like when the supervisor prepares the form. I know. I agree. That drives me nuts. Drives but me just keep it right. Have the employee do it. Keep it rather generic. Right. Yep. I like it when they put their shift start and end time, because then, you know, if it's something that happens early in the shift and they continue to work without any problems through the rest of their shift, that's important information I want to know. Also, I like to see a question if about whether it is a uh, like a recurrence or an aggravation of an ongoing problem. Like, have you had this issue before? Right. Yeah. And that goes to that. That helps you out with OSHA recording, too, because you might not know whether a back injury is a new injury or a back problem is a new injury or a recurrence of a prior issue that they had. And remember OSHA recordables are only for, I'm getting a little ahead of probably where we want to go, but OSHA recordables are only for new, new cases, not recurrences of preexisting conditions. So no, that, that's, that's actually, let's let us make that <laughs> our segue um, and talk about when do you, have to report this or record this for OSHA. So let's assume that the employer does an investigation and determines that uh, the employee was indeed injured uh, as, as the employee has described. Like there's just no question this person was hurt at work, no big deal. Yep. So um, then what is the employer's responsibility in terms of recording this for for OSHA. So you record an injury or an illness if it's work related, if it's a new problem, so not a recurrence, which is what we were just talking about. Sometimes yep. that's hard to decipher, honestly. Right. Again, um, if if somebody's just feeling pain at work from something that has happened before, then that's not caused by work. Right. Yeah. All right. So Although, but, go ahead. OSHA tends to take the position that if it happened at work, it is work related. So in other words, work relatedness for OSHA isn't necessarily the same as work relatedness for your workers' compensation purposes. Right. And that, whatever that might be right. different in states all over the country. Right. Yep. So OSHA stands is pretty much like if it happened at work, it's work related. But, you know, I think there's room to dispute that. Right. OK. So there's that uh, whether it's a new case and if it meets one or more of the recording criteria. And this can get we could probably do a whole episode just on this one <laughs> one aspect of recording. But if it involves death days away from work, restricted duty or job transfer. So they are doing a different 
job, they have restrictions, they can't do their former position or either because a doctor has told them they need restrictions or because you have decided to um, modify their job duties to account for this injury um, or medical treatment beyond first aid. So you've got to have work relatedness. It has to be a new case plus one of those things, death days away from work, restricted duty or medical treatment beyond first aid. All right. And then one step beyond that is let's say that we determine that this incident was indeed a new injury that was caused by work activity. And it did result in this employee getting uh, treatment at the emergency room or your local urgent care. So it is recordable. Then the question is, at what point does the employer have to affirmatively uh, alert OSHA that an injury has occurred? So let's let's review that. So if your employee is hospitalized as an inpatient hospitalization for treatment, you have to report to OSHA either by reporting online or by picking up the phone and reporting that way. You also have to report amputations uh, or loss of an eye. An amputation is includes even like the very tip of a finger with no loss of any actual bone. So that's lots of the times we see an amputation, it's just like a very small part of the fingertip. All of those have to be reported to OSHA within 24 hours of the time that you learn the injury is reportable. And you can't you can't stick your head in the sand and try not to learn about reportable injuries, right? Like Right, like you're dodging a subpoena. Right, you can't do that. So, um you have to, you know, take reasonable steps to figure out whether it's reportable and then report that within 24 hours. Fatalities uh, are reportable within eight hours. So let's go back and talk about admitted to the hospital for treatment because sometimes somebody can be hurt at work and they are taken, they go to the emergency room and then the emergency room actually formally admits them to the hospital, but no treatment is provided. And instead, all they do is admit them to monitor or, you know, assess the, the, the injury or assess that patient. And they actually don't provide any medicine. They actually don't provide an IV or anything like that. They're just monitoring that person. Mm-hmm. That is not admitted for treatment and that is not reportable. Do you agree? I, yeah, I agree. I know you and I have this, I feel like this comes up a lot actually. It and it's kind of hard to figure out whether, treatment has actually occurred within the hospital. You almost have to have somebody there at the hospital communicating with the employee or their family or the staff to like kind of figure out what's going on, or maybe you can get a hold of the, the notes, the chart, but it's sometimes very hard to figure out whether there's actual treatment happening. I think usually there is. I agree. If they're admitted. Yes. But occasionally it will be clear this person was admitted for observation only, you know, overnight or something. Let's say, you know what, when this does happen, here's a great example is if they're, if somebody has a concussion and they get conked on the head and they go to the hospital and the hospital says, you know, we're going to, we just want you to stay here overnight just to make sure you don't stroke out or whatever. Um, 
and and they just observe that person and you know come in periodically through the night make sure they haven't slipped into some kind of coma or something and there's actually no treatment given yeah um, that would be observation only so okay yeah and you might have a situation where the treatment was given in the er so maybe they gave some medication in the er or you know something like that but that treatment was not given as an inpatient in the hospital so that in my opinion, that doesn't make it a reportable. Do you agree? Uh, yes, but that's a dis, you know fine distinction, and, and you could end up in a legal argument over that. Oh, sure. Yeah, exactly. All exactly. this stuff. Yeah. So okay, again, that's why we're here. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, if anybody who's out there listening has any questions about any of this or comments, feel free to email us. You can email us at healthandsafety at amfdayton.com. And that's health and safety all smushed together, no spaces or anything at amfdayton.com. All right, Abby, I think that's a wrap for the day. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or anything we should discuss beyond this? Uh, no, I think we're good. Okay. Well, thanks for that, Abby. And thanks everybody for listening. As always, we do very much appreciate all of you tuning in. We hope that you are getting something out of listening to these podcasts. I do want to say one funny thing that, it, that I was talking to my wife about last night, Abby, we were talking about what makes a good podcast and what we decided was the definition for, for, for my wife and I, of a good podcast often is one that immediately puts you to sleep. Oh, ours is terrific by those standards. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> well, I hope not. I hope I not. Know. But, but I honestly, we often have trouble falling asleep or you wake up in the middle of the night and you know, you've got the earbuds or whatever. And so I'll listen to a podcast. And if I go right back to sleep or if I fall asleep right away, then that's a good podcast. I'm going to tune into again. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I hopefully, hope that's not true. Ho yeah, hopefully that's not people. Hopefully people aren't using our podcast as a sedative. But I mean, hey, if it gets us listeners, then knock yourself out. Right on. Literally. All right, yes, exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we'll talk to you last, next time. And remember, as always, we are lawyers. But we're not your lawyers, at least not while we're on this podcast. 